Welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. My name is Elise Glink, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I'm a best-selling author, radio talk show host, financial expert, and CEO of Best Money Moves, which is a financial wellness technology company. You can find me at bestmoneymoves.com. Equifax is a leading credit reporting agency, and last April, as part of its ongoing effort to be helpful, During COVID-19, the company launched an extensive COVID and credit financial resource center. You can find it at Equifax.com. This year has been so overwhelming, right, in almost every way you can think about. But what we're trying to do here is help you expand your access to some of the leading financial experts in the country and some of Equifax's own subject matter experts. So we discuss real-world financial solutions to mortgages and credit and share resources for people like you who want to protect your credit and manage your money during the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we're going to talk about how today's home buyers are actually doing, how old first-time home buyers are now, and whether home sellers are actually selling by owner. Jessica Louts, Vice President of Demographics and Behavioral Insights at the National Association of Realtors, joins me in a few minutes for an inside look at the 2020 profile of home buyers and home sellers. But first, let's turn to Kendall Keeling, Core Exchange's lead for data and analytics, to talk about how jobs and credit data coexist. Hi, Kendall. Welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So, so many people have experienced a job loss or transition this year, thanks to COVID-19. And we've been hearing from listeners who are wondering whether losing their job could actually affect their credit score. Can it? Yes. Well, the job loss itself shouldn't affect your credit score, but if you get behind on your payments, it could. Uh, or if you are highly leveraged on your credit cards or other loans because of the job loss, it definitely could. So that's reassuring um, that the job loss itself won't do it. But we've discussed on previous podcasts with Beverly Anderson, president of Equifax's Global Consumer Solutions Division, about how the CARES Act required lenders to report that if a borrower was current on their payments when they sought an accommodation, from a creditor, right, like a credit card company or a mortgage lender during the pandemic, they would continue to be reported as current for their credit history. Is that still the case? Uh, Yes, it is. The CARES Act is still uh, in place and it it has a couple of different components. Um, The primary component that I think affects the credit reporting agencies uh, and, and what you just described is really that, first of all, it is voluntary for the lenders to determine whether or not they want to make this accommodation. So a consumer can reach out to the lender or vice versa. The lender could reach out to the consumer and say, you know, do you need help? Um, what can we do to help you be able to make sure you continue to make your payments? So once that accommodation is agreed on um, by both parties, then that's when the CARES Act piece comes into place and says, you know, if you are current, um, while this accommodation is in place, we're going to continue to report you as current. If you were, let's say, 30 days past due when you put the accommodation into place, we're going to hold that static until the end of the accommodation. So that is still in place. That is still happening and should still be happening. What is a little bit confusing around this is that there are student loans and um, mortgages that are federally backed 
they're, they're subject to this as well, but they have additional conditions that the government has, has you know, pushed out that says you're not going to have to pay for this long and, and things like that. So when you get into credit cards and auto loans and things like that, that's very much just between the consumer and the borrower and the lender, right? The, those two parties. But when it comes to the federally backed products, it's much more a push down from the government on what that should look like. But we still uh, expect the lenders who are managing those and the servicers to send that information over according to these, right? But it's just the timeframes are, are different on the government backed loans because they, they advise what the timeframe should be and how long those will last. That's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about new jobs because we're hoping that more and more people are going to get new jobs uh, in 2021. What happens when people apply for new a new position? Are lenders able to pull a copy of their credit report? Yes, they can as long as they have uh, written consent from the potential um, employee. That's part of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and um, credit reports have been used in employment decisions for some time. Um, but, but it needs to be clear um, to the applicant that that's what they're giving their consent for. Now, does your credit history list the jobs you've actually had? Well, it definitely can. Um, it would be in a different segment from the trade line information. All right. There's different segments on the credit report. There's a separate segment for inquiries um, and credit activity that looks like that. And there's a separate section for trade lines. There's also uh, usually a separate section for employment. So uh, if that information has been provided to the credit reporting agency, it can be there. And, and in many cases, people will see that two or three jobs that they've had are there. But it's not likely that you would see an exhaustive list of every um, job that you've had. So it's not like it's not LinkedIn is right, what you're saying. Exactly. It's not LinkedIn for jobs. <laughs> that's right. That's that's very true. But to that point, if it doesn't include everything you've ever done, does it look to an employer that maybe you're mi- you've got some job history missing? I mean, what would what would looking at someone's credit history actually tell a future employer about that? Well, really, I mean, I think what they're typically looking for is is the credit history itself, the trade line history, the behavior, um, the payment behavior versus you know, what's there from an employment standpoint, because that's that's going to be less important for that this piece of the exercise than than, you know, verifying your past employment. So your credit report should not really be there for verifying past employments. What what they use it for typically is to make sure that, you know, you have a good history and that, you know, your financial behavior is is solid and what kind of debt that you're currently in. Uh, it's more likely that someone will use your, your credit history to make an employment decision or aid them in an employment decision if it's uh, a job involving finance or financial transactions. It's not used consistently and it's not used by everyone, but it can be considered uh, as part of your, uh, your application process. And there are some states where where you literally can't pull a credit history or a credit score to make a decision. Yes, th- there are. Um, certain states have different viewpoints on, you know, what should and should not be allowed. Um, and so, you know, you would need to check with your individual state on what's allowed. But for the most part, 
you know, the key piece, it's back to making sure that you know what's on your credit report so that anybody who's going to be using it to make any kind of decision on you uh, within their right and their permissible purpose will have accurate information to be able to do that. So that's not a place, you know, like getting a mortgage. It's not a place that you want to find out that there's something on your credit report that you were not aware of. Uh, when you're applying for a job or when you're applying for a mortgage or a loan. So it's, it's something you definitely want to stay in touch with, uh, stay appraised of all the time. Kendall Keeling is Core Exchange's lead for Equifax. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And now, if you've ever wondered how many sellers are actually selling by owner and how many buyers purchase without the help of a real estate agent, you've come to the right place. Jessica Louts is Vice President of Demographics and Behavioral Insights at the National Association of Realtors, and she's dropped by to chat about the Realtors' new 2020 profile of home buyers and home sellers. Jessica, welcome to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm psyched. This report has been coming out since 1981, so definitely uh, a very long period of time. So let's talk about sort of the high-level changes uh, and what you are seeing now that's different from previous years for buyers and sellers. Yeah, so this year obviously is completely different uh, because we do have COVID-19. So what we did this year that is pretty unique to this year's report is we actually added two new chapters, a chapter that only looks at buyers who had transactions who closed after April, so April and later, and then sellers who who likewise did the same. Um, we knew that even if they were in their home search process, even had a contract on a home during that time period, their transaction is gonna be different. Their search is gonna be different, their relationship to their agent, even just thinking about delays in that process and what they're looking for. It's interesting. So much about real estate has changed since April. Uh, For example, my husband is a real estate attorney. He never goes to a closing anymore. It's just all online. Yeah, it's amazing. Just thinking about, too, the the amount of consumers who are willing to actually put a contract on a home sight unseen. Um, it We really had no reason to even track this number in the past. We had the data on it, but we never reported it. It used to be 3%. It's jumped to a whopping 5%. It's not that big, but it's still kind of astounding because that's one in 20 consumers who are willing to do that. Yeah, that's amazing to me that anybody would spend the largest single purchase amount that they ever will spend without ever having seen it. But we've jumped ahead a little bit. So um, some of the things that I thought were interesting uh, is that the people who completed their transactions after March were more likely to buy a multi-generational home. This is something that we've seen in Europe for many, many years and around the globe. You often have multi-generations living together, not so much in the U.S. So tell me a little bit about what you found in your survey. Yeah, so I I love this topic. We've been collecting data on this for a number of years now, and it always hovers around 12%, 11%. It doesn't really move. Um, And so this year, what we reported is that for consumers who purchased before COVID, it was just 11%. And then after COVID, it jumped to 15%. Um, The the top reason is for older relatives to move into someone's home. And there's a lot of independent older relatives who are living in senior care centers or perhaps in their own condo or apartment, and now they're back living with family. But then also uh, young adults over the age of 18 have boomerang back or they are also just not leaving because there's there's no college necessarily in person or they're taking a gap year um, or just job losses as well. 
It's really interesting, especially given that you would think that if all of these older parents, this I guess this is the oldest of the baby boom generation or maybe the generation older than baby booms. Yeah, so it would be, I guess, the silent generation. So thinking about people who are in their uh, perhaps late 70s, 80s, um, even 90s years old uh, would now be living with their adult children. And yet this hasn't really freed up a whole lot more inventory. We're working on the smallest amount of inventory ever. Right. Yeah. And so every month when we put out our existing home sales numbers, it's we're looking at very limited inventory, continuing to break records. But then we're also looking at these really extraordinarily short uh, list of contract times also breaking records. So that's really just talking about that limited inventory that's out there. I think I saw a recent Redfin study that said that a significant number of sellers are entertaining multiple bids right now across the country. Absolutely. And that's something that you used to see in pocketed areas, um, in expensive areas like California or New York, uh, D.C., Boston, uh, places where there's a large population, very limited inventory. Uh, but now you are seeing it on a nationwide scale, even in rural areas, outer suburbs. Um, those properties are moving very quickly because people want more space um, in their home and less density in their neighborhood. So what are buyers looking for right now? Anecdotally, from the very first moment COVID started, uh, we were seeing buyers look for more space, more land, more bedrooms. What are we seeing now because of the pandemic? Um, we see the number one reason that sellers sold after COVID is just for more space. So really looking at that square footage um, and also just looking at single family homes in the suburbs. Um, it's very traditional to think that way, but it all also is unusual in that you had seen a lot of people being very attracted to the revitalization of cities, being very attracted to condos with the luxury amenities that they could provide. Uh, but now people just want their own door, their own entrance, their own yard, um, really placing a high priority on those things. Is anybody thinking about post-COVID? I mean, the you know, this will all be over in 2021, but home ownership lasts a little bit longer typically. So are you thinking that there will be some shifts at the end of COVID? Yeah, I think that was one of the interesting takeaways I had from this year's report is looking at the expected tenure. Um, for people who are buying pre-COVID, their expected tenure is 15 years. That's a really long period of time. Um, they were really planning like this is, if not my forever home, this is a place I'm going to settle down for a long period of time. For people who are buying during COVID, they actually said, I'm only expecting to live here for 10 years. I think there's this idea that I need to move quickly out of my space that I'm in. I'm very urgently need to sell. I'm going to move to a new place and I'm going to stay there while it suits my family's needs, but it might not be my forever home. Um, so I, I think there is some of that going on as well. And isn't there a real disconnect? Because how long do people actually stay in their homes? It's actually, it, it hit an all-time high and it has been there. Uh, it's been 10 years for, for a few years now, bouncing around 9 and 10. Uh, but traditionally, it used to be 6 and 7. And people used to move because they had a baby or something in their lives changed. They got married or divorced. And now with the drop in birth rates, the drop in marriage rates, we just don't have those factors. So people are staying a little bit longer. And that also has uh, really hurt, I think, the amount of inventory that's on the market. Absolutely. People just are not making these trades, not downsizing. Just even thinking about those multi-generational buyers, they may be hitting retirement or thinking about retirement at least. And they certainly can't downsize with these additional adults in their home. 
No, and they're not actually uh, retiring sooner anyway. Aren't they working a little bit longer? I, I talked to employers across the country, and they're dealing with even members of the silent generation, let alone baby boomers who are still in their workforce. Roughly five generations are now all at the same employer in many, many cases. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thinking about Gen Z coming up into the workforce, too. Uh, I think that the people are living longer. They are healthier longer, COVID aside. Um, and so they do feel comfortable being in the workforce longer. And I, I think that the idea of remote work, too, if you were thinking about retirement, you may actually think, you know, if I'm an office worker and I'm working at home, this might be a little easier and I can stall retirement a couple more years which is really good for people who are working. Maybe not so good for the employers, but that's a different topic. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so let's talk about pricing, because I hear a lot about how, you know, two and a half percent for a 30-year fixed rate loan is doable. There's 10-year rates for 2% out there that I looked at the other day. But, you know, the prices are just skyrocketing and they're going up. I mean, places like Boise have seen year-over-year increases that remind me very much of 2006 to 2008 um, in Phoenix and in Las Vegas. So at what point in time do home prices rise to a place where Gen Z and younger baby boomers can't afford it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, home prices have been skyrocketing and it has become out of reach for many people to be able to um, just think about entering home ownership. If you're putting away that down payment, it can be very, very difficult for them to be able to do that. Um, we have seen that first-time home buyers have actually dropped to a 33-year low. Uh, we really have seen that they have been hurt by the home prices, the lack of inventory, especially at the affordable price points. How do you expect this to resolve? Are there any conversations going on inside the realtors that would shed some light on how we're actually either going to get more inventory built, get the home builders to build more, get people to sell and and trade more? What are the conversations like inside the realtors about this? Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a really a, a problem for a number of years now, um, but it really has accelerated with COVID as people are really reconsidering where they're living. Uh, there was a lot of pent-up demand from the spring really coming into the market uh, in summer and continuing through the fall. And really, as we enter winter, the demand is still there. There's a lot of people still in the pipeline. Uh, as far as inventory goes, we are talking to the home builders. We have really encouraged building. Um, a lot of it has to do with such a number of issues. Uh, lumber prices skyrocketing more than 100% in recent months, uh, but then also looking at the labor supply issues, land impact fees. Uh, it's really a host of issues uh, that, that builders are really facing right now. Um, as far as encouraging sellers, um, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of anxiety right now. But I think that if sellers knew that they could stay safe in the transaction, that is one aspect that they really need to hear um, about the the masks and the uh, shoe coverings and the gloves that people are encouraged to have um, and the embracing of technology as people do view homes online as well. But if sellers are selling less frequently, which is what you just said, and they want to stay in their homes longer because they have all these other people living in them, encouraging them or telling them it's safe isn't really going to make more of them sell, is it? No, it's not. But if they are someone who perhaps held on to their home for a longer period of time, they have considered moving, but they're nervous that they don't have enough equity in their home. With these rising prices, this could be the encouragement they need to actually list their home on the market. 
Uh, finally, I wanted to ask about FISBOs for sale by owners. It's interesting. You know, for a long, long time, you estimated roughly 15% of all sellers were for you know selling by owner without an agent. Now you're saying that the number is around maybe 7%, maybe 8%. And you said the number of people who used a buyer's agent was about 85%. So there seems to be about 7 or 8% missing. Help me fill in the gap there. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of uh, different data points here. So one is that about 88% of people are using a buyer's agent through that transaction. And about 89% are using a seller's agent. Uh, we do see when you're on the buying side that you can either buy directly through that previous owner, so FISBO, uh, or you could buy through a builder's agent. And so we have seen that actually go down as well. Um, even if people are buying a new built home and that inventory is so limited, what we have seen is that people want agent representation. They want their own agent to help them navigate that transaction, um, really negotiate th through that process and really tell them what's next. Uh, one of the big things that I think of here is that the first time home buyer share has shrunk, but even if you're a repeat buyer in that process, you're essentially a first time home buyer because you haven't done this in 10 years. Uh, and the process is completely different than a decade ago. And so you do need help through that. Um, but we have seen that FISBOs have gone down. People don't know how to price their home uh, appropriately as home prices have gone up. And it's very hard to be able to market your home right now. Why is it hard when you've got so much going on with the internet and it, it has never been easier to set up a website to sell. You can list your home in Zillow. There are iBuyers everywhere. Why is it harder? Yeah, absolutely. So just thinking about all of the new virtual tools and the technology that's out there, absolutely it is there. But being able to navigate that and learn that technology is just a big hurdle. It's definitely a learning curve that even agents have learned to embrace very uh, commonly in the last few months. But for an individual person to list their home, make sure that they have social distancing and spacing between the tours and make sure that all of these virtual tools are used, um, that would definitely be a, a struggle to be able to do that in that process. So Jessica, you think that as technology continues to develop, fewer buyers and fewer sellers will go it alone? I think that the technology has been there for a number of years, but what we have seen is that the agent use truly is near all-time highs. People want someone to help them navigate this process. It is the largest investment that they will make in their lifetime. And while they're using technology, buyers and sellers themselves throughout the process, they truly do want a human who will tell them, this is the next step in the process. This is what's coming next. Um, and this is what you need to be looking out for. These are some hurdles that have been happening due to COVID. Um, and this is what we need to do to make this transaction go seamlessly. So in a year that was a really unusual year, anything else you want to bring up about the results of the survey? You know, we are seeing some changes here that I think are fascinating. We've seen birth rates around the country have dropped to more than 35 years lows. And we're seeing that home buyers who enter the into home ownership with a child has, has really declined as well um, from 58% in the 1980s to uh, just over a third right now. So it's really seeing a mirroring in that. Some big implications for where people are looking for a home, uh, what they need out of a home. So definitely some changes demographics-wise are really impacting who the buyers are today as well. 
Jessica Louts is Vice President of Demographics and Behavioral Insights at the National Association of Realtors. Thank you so much for taking the time to break down this new study. It's certainly some unique results, I'd say. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, that does it for this week's Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Please visit the Equifax COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center at Equifax.com and check out our other episodes. We'll be back soon with another Equifax Credit Talks podcast. I'm Elise Glink. Thanks for listening.